Hello, and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast, a gambling addiction recovery podcast brought to you by those with lived experience. If you're here and having difficulties with gambling, please reach out. There are plenty of people on your side. There's a comprehensive list of support services over on our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. It's now time to crack on with the pod. Hello and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast in which today we're primarily focusing on research but with something slightly different to our usual delivery method coming up later in the show in part two with a dear colleague of mine from TalkGen called CJ. Before that however we welcome the one and only Dr Steve Sharman and so without further ado let's get into today's show. A huge welcome to our first guest on today's show, Steve Sharman. Uh, within the recovery and service provider bubble, there are, of course, plenty of people who know who you are, uh, or at the very least know your name, at least. Um, but for the wider audience, um, could you give a little introduction? Yeah, sure. So as you said, my name is Steve Sharman. And thank you very much. I wanted to say first for, for having me on. I am, as you say, a gambling researcher. I I'm a research fellow. I'm, I'm stretched across two different universities at the moment. Um, I work part-time at the University of East London doing stuff using uh, virtual reality to look at different within-game constructs and their influences on gambling behaviour. And then I also work as a gambling research fellow at the National Addiction Centre uh, in King's College London as their gambling research fellow there looking at different aspects of gambling uh, behaviour. Interesting and I'm sure we're going to come on to plenty of that shortly. Uh, obviously <laughs> you, you've got a broad spectrum of expertise and that's why we've invited you on today. I wanted to find out firstly what was your motivation for to, to focus some of your research around gambling populations? Yeah, so I've, I've always been interested in psychology. Um, I think it, it goes right back to even back to being a teenager and being playing football and being captain of football teams and like and understanding why some players needed like an arm around the shoulder, some players needed a, a, like a rocket up the backside to get the best out of them. So I think I've always been interested in psychology. So in my, I, don't know, I guess I was in my mid-20s-ish, I went to university to study psychology and I loved the addiction modules more than anything else. So I knew that that was the, the area of psychology that I wanted to work in going forward. Then as a separate thing, um, I was already interested in gambling, but more, almost, almost more from the perspective of the gambler. So I, I liked gamble on football. I did then, I still do a little bit now. Um, I lived with a guy who spent a bit of time uh, trying to be a professional poker player. So gambling was already something that was part of my life to a certain extent and then as part of the addictions module on my undergraduate degree there was a guest lecture from uh, Henrietta Bowden Jones who at the time had just started running the National Problem Gambling Clinic and that that just kind of changed everything for me because I, I hadn't all, all the lectures in that module before would focus purely on substances and I, I just it never occurred to me that we would be able to study um, behaviours from an addictive perspective so realising that I could combine my interests in gambling as a behaviour and my interests in kind of the addiction side of psychology um, kind of put me on this trajectory. Uh, so in terms of then how I got more into it, I then emailed Henrietta after that lecture to see if she had any voluntary positions or anything at the gambling clinic that I could do to come and get some experience. 
And she basically said no <laughs> and then hustled her sort of almost to the, the point of it being illegal. And eventually she said, yes, uh, come along. Um, and from there, we got, we, I started working on, on a voluntary basis, which is incidentally where I met Luke Clark through one of the research meetings there. And I guess things have, have just progressed from there. I love that. It's, it's so interesting. And uh, the psychology thing, I'm the same. When, when I listened to you there, I realised that I always felt that way as well. And obviously I went down the, the route of being the gambler and the, the person harmed by gambling, unfortunately, in many ways. But actually, it's taught me an awful lot. And, you know, I wouldn't be me today without having gone through that. And in many ways, I'm I'm quite thankful for that uh, because I, it's opened my eyes to something which I'm incredibly interested about and something that I'm going to be able to do good in going forward. And, and you know, the football coach – or sorry, not the football coach, but the football um, – captain thing I get that as well I used to be the football captain and it's really interesting to to have that um insight into who different people are and it's like here you know some weeks I have to give Ryan a kick up the arse because he hasn't got got the uh got the invitation sent out on time or the script already and you know Chris wants to ask these questions well you should have sent me something sooner Ryan and then there's other weeks I've got to put the arm around him because he's feeling a little bit sad and all that you know so but that's what we're here for isn't it that's what we're here for and talking about um you living with somebody who was playing poker actually and trying to play professionally I'd really like to just touch that a little bit more and see how did that what was that like I'm really interested to know what that was like and what your insight from that person was and are they still a pro yeah so it was it was it was a yeah it was a guy that I live with uh, at university I think at the at the time that we lived together he had he'd stopped trying to be a professional poker player I think if, if my recollection is correct uh, his attempts at being a professional were actually quite short-lived. So obviously he wasn't very successful. So yeah, it, he didn't, um, it, it, it wasn't something that affected kind of our situation while we were living together. I must admit, when, when with, with regards to the poker, um, anyone that knows my story is I tried again for a very short period of time to become a professional poker player. Um, and I, to be honest, um, and I've commented on this before, I was actually... A good poker player, I studied the game and everything, but as a gambling addict, it, it didn't make any difference. I had no bankroll management, and um, often it would go on on other things, slots, sports betting, and I couldn't help myself during the breaks of these uh, poker tournaments when I'm playing sort of six hands, six handed multi table tournaments at the time, just to sort of kind of like go into the casinos and play blackjack, table games, roulette, etc., and basically do all my bankroll. It, it just made no difference whatsoever despite some big results uh, anyway I'm not trying to glamorize gambling there by the way just to our listeners um, this is primarily a gambling addiction recovery podcast and uh, yeah if, if anything my story uh, shows you know how crazy things can get and how bad it can get for me so uh, certainly not uh, glamorizing that uh, I also wanted to talk totally the opposite end of glamorizing to be honest and that's the link to destitution and uh, investigating the relationship between gambling and homelessness um, Obviously, you've done a few studies on that. Can you give us a little bit of a snapshot of, of what you found there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, actually, this, this work, again, came about through um, the link with the National Problem Gambling Clinic. Uh, there was a clinician there called Annika Lindbergh at the time who'd been doing some work with uh, Connection at St. Martin's near Charing Cross. And they basically had a pile of data just gathering dust in the clinic that Henrietta asked me to have a look at. So I, I kind of took it back to my lab and started going through the data and kind of inputting it into a, a workable form. And the more we looked at it, the more we could see that actually there's, there's, there's something quite interesting going on here. So that led to two initial pieces of work. One was just to look at the prevalence of um, 
problem gambling um, within that specific sample. Um, I'm specifically going to call it problem gambling, if that's all right, because the PGSI was used to measure um, the behaviour. So that's why I'm going to call it problem gambling. I know there's discussion around what what terms are more and less appropriate. Um, But what we discovered in that first piece was that the levels of problem gambling were significantly higher in in that homeless sample than they would be in the general population. So problem gambling is always said to be you know just under kind of between 0.5 and 1% in the general population in that first study it was about 11% in our homeless sample so you know as you can see significantly higher we then did a, a second piece of work uh, to try and kind of understand the the direction of the relationship between the two uh, which was really, really interesting because in, in the, the people who identified as as problem gamblers, what we tried to find out was whether gambling was, was a cause of homelessness or whether it was something that happened afterwards. Now, the logical intuitive answer is that gambling would be a cause. And that that kind of is what we found for, for uh, I think it was about three quarters of the people said gambling was basically was was it came before they were homeless. So it was a cause. But then there was this other this kind of other group that, had only started gambling after they'd become homeless. And that to me was really interesting because that was quite an unexpected result. And the way that that kind of, that got explained through um, through the kind of the, the other bits of data that we collected within the study was that when gambling is a cause of homelessness, it's kind of obvious in that, well, it's, it's in some ways it's obvious and in some ways it's much more subtle. So you would have guys that we spoke to who said, well, basically, yeah, I would get paid. I'd sit up, I'd wait till I get paid. Midnight would click round, it'd fall into my account and the money would be gone within three hours. I then couldn't pay my rent. So eventually I got kicked out. And there the link is, is not subtle at all. It's a very obvious link between gambling and homelessness. But then there would be some times where the relationship would be much more subtle. So it would be something like uh, speaking to a guy who was classified as homeless because he was sofa surfing had nowhere permanent was having to just stay on the the, the sofas of different friends and family whenever he could and the reason for that was because he his gambling had caused uh, the breakdown in his relationship with his girlfriend so she asked him to leave and then he had nowhere to go so the if you ask say what is your direct cause of homelessness he would say well my relationship broke down my girlfriend kicked me out but actually the secondary cause behind that relationship breakdown was the gambling and that's where gambling kind of can have a sort of more of a more of a subtle relationship with homelessness that's interesting i mean i can only talk about um i had a period of time before um, my problematic relationship with, uh, uh, with gambling of, of homelessness, I had a, a bout of homelessness, and I, I might add it was it was totally away from what happened to me from a gambling perspective. I don't wish to generalise here or, or play on a stereotype when I say this, but in terms of substance abuse, was there a crossover there? And the reason why I ask this is just, just just from my general observation, at least when I was in bookmakers, for example, over the years, and. Um, I was always quite charitable um, and I've worked with a few uh, homeless, local homeless populations and I was always quite charitable. I always thought it was was going to bring me luck uh, on the way to the bookies and stuff like that. And uh, quite often I would sit and chat to a lot of the homeless and uh, hear all about their experiences and whatnot. And you would see some of the homeless population come into the local betting shops and essentially I wouldn't necessarily define them as having a gambling problem uh, but they were trying to for want of a phrase spin it up to essentially uh, buy drugs or or alcohol uh, because they only had like a few quid for example Um, and that that also came across in discussion I might add did you ever find anything like links to that as well 
Yeah, that that is an interesting question because it, it did does we we found it kind of tended to depend on what the individual's kind of primary interest was. So um, specifically, the people who were substance users primarily, they didn't tend to gamble because they would know what money they had coming in. They would know what they would need to buy the alcohol or whatever drug of, of choice it was. And they wouldn't want to risk losing that money because they didn't. They, they, knew, they knew they didn't need any more money than what they were getting to buy what they needed. Whereas the gamblers, on the other hand, might spend some money on, on alcohol and some substances, but then would want to gamble more. And, and so it was an interesting, to me, it was a really interesting kind of dual approach to risk for different risky behaviours. I find this really interesting because myself, having had alcohol issues as well as gambling issues, I'm trying to put myself in, in this place. And you know, I've never been homeless, but um, but the other thing that springs to mind here is the amount of times that I wished I was. And obviously that doesn't happen now. But when I used to see a homeless guy coming in the bookies or, you know, sitting outside on a bench drinking a can of strong lager, I used to think that guy's got no worries in the world. I wish I could be in his place. And now obviously I don't, I don't feel that at all. But that was something that used to regularly go on in my mind and I was talking about this uh, last week funny enough um, in a in a online meeting about um about gambling stuff so gambling recovery so yeah that I find that interesting and I can think of an example as well when I uh, it was one lunchtime and I went into a Betfred near what station was it in London now can't think anyway it was near what it was near the river jumped into a Betfred and um I had five pound on me and somebody had asked me to go to the pub after work and I was like, right, if I go with this fiver, I can get two pints, but I can't do that. I can't do that. And I put that five pound in. It was one of those days when actually it landed on the number two, which I put it in for. And it was one day that I managed to walk out without spinning again. Now, that didn't happen, but I took it to the pub and I spent it all in the pub. And and for what you're saying there, really kind of, it messes with my mind a little bit because, you know, I was a drinker before I was a gambler. I drank from 14 to 35. I gambled from 30 to 35 when something happened in my mind. And there were days when I didn't drink and I just gambled because gambling was more important. But on that day, there was something which just took me to the pub with that money after I'd won it. And I don't know why. And I just find the whole psychology of this stuff really, really weird. I don't know if you've got any insight for me, Steve. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking there about actually going into the bookies is one of the other really interesting bits of um one of the really interesting findings that came out of those studies was we looked at the type of things that that people gambled on as well and most commonly it was uh, i think i'm remembering rightly it was it was slot machines or fixed odds betting terminals but predominantly it was it was we, when we dug into it a bit further it was because the it was somewhere that basically you could go to be warm and and dry and kind of in in the winter they were they were kind of safe and if you think about it things like um the 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 quicksilvers and the and the arcades and things some of those are open 24 hours so if you've got nowhere to sleep actually going into somewhere like that that is warm and dry and safe and open um where you can spend the night maybe even if you've got someone nice working there get a cup of tea it's actually a preferable alternative to to being out on the street now obviously the caveat is to be in there you have to be gambling and that was kind of where we found people who maybe 
hadn't gambled before, had started gambling since becoming homeless. It was literally because it was somewhere to be, but they had to be doing that behaviour to actually be allowed in there, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make a lot of sense. And I've just remembered where this Betfred was, and it was on an opposite Blackfriars station in London. And even now, even though I know I used to go in there to gamble, I will say in my head, I'm popping in there for some biscuits. I used to go in there for custard creams that they always had on the counter at lunchtime. So if anybody ever asked me, I would just say, I'm going to have some biscuits. Was I heck? I mean, yeah, I had a lot of biscuits in there, but that wasn't why I was going. So I totally get what you're saying there. But I think Ryan's got a question, so I'll let him jump in. So moving a, a, away from uh, homeless communities and, and destitution, I think it's really important to try and understand what's going on and, and how our brain worked during our addiction. That's something that's really fascinated me uh, as I've come into recovery. Uh, obviously, earlier on that you mentioned Dr. Luke Clark, who um, you know he's also been on the podcast and an absolutely fascinating character, and um, yeah, I specifically specifically invited him on to talk about my addiction to slots um, and uh, yeah it was very very insightful so firstly I guess one I'm intrigued to, to see how what it was like working with him uh, also I noticed that you spent a bit of time in my hometown Lincoln um, how did that uh, how did that work out what was Lincoln like good night good night life <laughs> yeah Link Lincoln was great um, I actually only lived there for I think it was for about 18 months and for a good, well, nine, nine months of that, at least. Yeah, nine months of that. Um, my wife was pregnant, so we didn't actually have much of a social life because she didn't really feel like going out too much um, a lot of the time. But yeah, Lincoln was lovely. Yeah, that, that came about because I, I had finished my PhD and was, and was working for um, a social research company doing kind of corporate research, which I really, really didn't enjoy. And Amanda Roberts, who still is still at Lincoln now and does a lot of a lot of work um, in the gambling area, and I noticed she had got some money to to do some work with Gordon Moody and was advertising for. Um, at the time, it was just a research assistant, and I desperately wanted to get back into academic the academic field, and I wanted to get back into gambling research. So I applied for that job, got it. We moved to Lincoln for a year and a half, and then. Then, yeah, then ended up moving back to London. But I still work very closely with Amanda, so I still got pretty strong links with Lincoln. Do you remember Steep Hill then at Lincoln? I do. Um, I, I remember literally having to push my wife up the hill because she almost couldn't get up the hill by the time she was... By the time she was at about 36 and a half weeks, she literally couldn't walk up that hill and I had to physically push her up the hill. So, yes... <laughs> I do remember that well. And you've done research on uh, cognitive uh, processing and resultant behaviour. We've spoken about it a few times on, on the podcast with uh, various uh, researchers, experts on, on this particular subject. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, what you found in this particular field? Anything uh, anything particularly interesting for us? Yeah, so I guess uh, the best way to answer that is, is quite a bit of my work. Um, actually, so quite a bit of the work I did with Luke um, as part of my PhD and then some of the work that I'm doing now at UEL. Um, that looks specifically at what we call within-game constructs and how they impact on, on future gambling behaviour. So the thing we look at mainly, or the, or the two constructs that I've spent most time looking at, are, are near misses and losses disguised as wins. So obviously near misses, um, at, at when you feel like you've come close to winning, but actually you've still lost. And we particularly look at those on the slot machine context because they're a, because they're the easiest to program in a laboratory environment, um, and B, because they're very e it's easy to simulate a near miss on a slot machine. So if you've got three reels that all have to match, the first two match, and then the third one stops just after or just before the pay line, then that's what we would call um, a near miss. And they're, they're a, a complex outcome in that 
when you when you measure reactions to them, they that they're, they're really aversive. They're really unpleasant. People don't like experiencing that that kind of outcome. But at the same time, they increase motivation to continue gambling. So they have this kind of weird bivalent property to them. And there's a few different ways that people have tried to theorise about about near misses and why they make people gamble more, um, including. I think one of Luke's favourites is the skill acquisition theory, where uh, a near miss is is kind of taken as an indication that you're getting better at what you're doing. Therefore, you're getting closer to, to your desired outcome, which is a win. So, so you're getting closer to a win. Now, I think that theory potentially holds some water if you're talking about anything that has an element of skill in. So, for example, if you are, I mean, it's debatable whether sports betting is a skill or not, but if you, if if you accept for a moment that it is, if you're picking an accumulator and you're getting more teams right each week as a as a not a very good example, um, that, that could show that perhaps you are getting closer to your desired outcome. But if you're betting on something that's purely chance, then obviously there's there's no skill involved. So you can't be good at playing the lottery. So, you know, matching matching two numbers instead of three or whatever it is now to, to win the, the smallest prize, that's not an indication of that you're getting better at what you're doing. Like, it's just luck. Um, there's also one of the other kind of strong theories is the frustration theory that actually it's it's really annoying to get so close to winning and then not winning. So you want to gamble more to alleviate those feelings of frustration. And yeah, they're, they're kind of that's that's one of the constructs that we look at and look at how that influences um, influences behaviour. I find these theories really, really interesting. And I try and put myself back into kind of myself gambling and the thought process and that when I'm there. And it's, and it's like you said about... Um, well, you know, firstly, if I was playing on a machine and all it had was a red button and a green button and it was green win, red not win, how much would I have played it in the first place? Not sure, to be honest. You know, it would be a totally different um, feeling, I have no doubt. Um, but when you're talking about kind of the near miss and actually maybe getting better, feeling like you're getting better and actually potentially there's something there in skill-based games. Well, I think from a personal feeling, I could see that working even when it isn't a skill-based game. So let's say roulette, for example. The more I'm getting closer to that number, just because that happens to be what it is on that day, I could still feel like that. I could still feel like I'm getting better when actually it's a total game of chance and I wasn't getting any better at all, sitting back and thinking about it now. But that but that is how it made me feel, to be honest, which is which is quite an interesting thing. Um, something I want to pick up now, actually, because you did mention, it, mention them already. Um, I know you spent some time at Gordon Moody. So we obviously had some people from Gordon Moody on the show before. So we just, you know, what was your experience like? Yeah, so, so that, was, that was really interesting. It was that, yeah, as I say, that, that came about through working with Amanda up at Lincoln. Um, and my, my initial part of that job was to actually go to Dudley and dig out some of the old case files that were literally kind of gathering dust in boxes stacked up on shelves in one of the spare rooms of the one of the Dudley houses. Um, and it was, I spent a lot of time kind of working through all those files and digitizing it and redacting stuff and making it all completely anonymous and things. But what, what was, I think what was really interesting working through all that data, going, looking through all those historical case files of people who, who have sought treatment through Gordon Moody, it was a, bit, a really kind of overriding sense of um, how gambling can be so different, but at the same time, so similar. And I guess what I mean by that is that there, there were people from all walks of life that have been through the Gordon Moody programme. There's different ages, different ethnicities, different economic backgrounds. 
you might have someone who exclusively had gambled on dog racing, for example, or then you might also have somebody who'd only ever gambled on the stock market. You have people who maybe like some people, you know, who'd lost millions and millions and millions of pounds. And then you'd also have, might have somebody whose total debt was like less than a thousand pounds, but they were both had ended up at that position where they felt like they really needed that kind of intense residential therapy. But then so that, so there was a lot of very, very different people, but then at, at, at the same time, um, there was a lot of similarities with the cases as well. Like there was, there was often, there was often, you know, like um, a description of a, a kind of a positive childhood memory associated with gambling, like either a, a holiday or spending time with family on the Grand National or something like that. Um, there was often, I know this is talked about quite a lot. There was often reference to an early win of, of an early big win that, that people would, would kind of really refer back to. And we, you'd also, there was almost in almost every single case file, there was something along the lines of it was not quite word for word in every case, but something along the lines of I knew that if I could just win and pay back X, then I'd be OK. And that that was just the, the one thing that was there almost all the time. Just that just that using gambling as the as the potential solution to the problems that were created by gambling. And that was, it was, it's hugely consistent across a lot of the case files. I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. So I'm totally not surprised by that. And I've been in that situation and I've won the money to pay it all off and I've lost it again. And, you know, the cycle continues. And that is, that is so, so normal. And something else you mentioned there about the, um, the big win and the early big win. I was writing a blog about this um, just a couple of weeks ago, funny enough, and I was thinking about this. And yeah, I talk about my early big win and my early big win wasn't that big, really, looking back. But at the time, it felt big. But actually, it wasn't quite as early as I thought. But I realised now looking back, I called it my early big win. But there was quite a lot of time I didn't win anything before that. And then it came in. But that's the first memory I have. So I sometimes think we talk about our first big win, like it happened straight away. It was the first bet. And it is for some people, of course. But actually, it isn't other times. But people just remember that because that's what that's what sticks in the mind. And I do find all this stuff very, very interesting. And uh, another thing I want to just jump onto now, a bit of football and a bit of sport. So it's no secret that we absolutely love our football. And so we'd like to delve a little deeper into the piece that you did in terms of gambling exposure in football. I think you analysed the match day programmes, didn't you, from all the Premier League and Championship clubs. So what did you find in that? Was there anything significant? Yeah, yeah, we did. That was a... Uh... It was a really, really interesting piece of work, work actually, and, and we're we're in the process of writing up a follow up as well. Um, but when that that first piece, it was yeah. So we looked at exposure to initially it was we were going to look at exposure to smoking, gambling, alcohol, um, responsible gambling, uh, adverts, and marketing and messaging. We eventually we, we had to drop tobacco from the analysis because there was just there was nothing you just don't really get any exposure to any kind of smoking um, and tobacco marketing in match day programs but with the with the with the gambling yeah there was nearly I'm trying to just remember I think it was there was something like two and a half adverts full page adverts for gambling uh, on average per program and I think we looked at something called incidental exposure which is when it's not a full-on advert, but you can still clearly see a logo. So, so for example, if you've got a, a, a picture of a player who plays for a club with a gambling sponsor and you can clearly see the gambling logo on the shirt, we would count that as incidental exposure. And I think from memory, there was nearly 40 exposures to gambling logos per programme 
on average. And I think they appeared on roughly 25% of pages. So if you're just sitting there, you know, you're at the match, you bought the program, like about a quarter of pages will have some exposure to, to, to gambling. I mean, there was some massive variability in that, I should say. Like, so certain clubs just hardly have any at all. So Arsenal, Man City, I think Brighton were one of the other ones that were really good, hardly had any at all. And then the other end of the scale, I think it was Leeds, Derby, Swansea and Nottingham Forest were all like close to around 60% of their pages had some exposure to gambling marketing. So over half the pages, you would have a gambling logo of some description on there. Um, but I think one of the one of the most shocking findings for me from that particular study was obviously some match day programs have a child specific section where you have like you know word searches crosswords um spot the differences things like that and even in that child specific section i think it was 60 percent of those child specific sections still had exposure to gambling marketing like they were predominantly pictures of players with shirt sponsors that were gambling companies but yeah that that for me was extremely extremely concerning that there was that many child specific sections that still had exposure to gambling marketing yeah that i mean that is extremely uh, concerning and you know i'm fully aware of that and it's the same with things like stickers isn't it and sticker books and all that kind of stuff the paninis and all that um FIFA, we know it's in all this stuff, and it's it's really not a good thing. And um, you know that's why we take part in the big step, me and Ryan, and that kind of stuff because we think it's such an important, it's such an important issue and needs to be dealt with. Sticking on sport for a second, and you mentioned tobacco there. I think it kind of links in quite nicely to a tweet that I noticed you retweeted today because we're recording a little bit earlier than this is going out. And it was about the McLaren racing and how yesterday they announced their new multi-million. Year partner, sorry, their new multi-year partnership with leading sports betting and entertainment group Entain. So there we go. So that used to be tobacco on the cars, and now we've got an Entain company. So yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it, it, it follows a similar pattern to what we've seen in football. So we've we've done a, I've done a little bit of work, kind of looking at some of the the history of of sponsorship in the top division, and uh, you you I guess you will remember, like in in the nineties, there was quite a lot of alcohol sponsorship. Um, there was also a lot of electronics companies, <laughs> weirdly, were one of the one of the kind of the main industries. And gradually, as as alcohol has been phased out, it's it, the the gap has been filled by gambling companies. And you know, we're now at a, a position where we've just got more teams sponsored by gambling companies than any any other industry. Oh, that's crazy. And uh, one thing's definitely for sure: though, there'll be no gambling ads in our match day program um, come the family fun day. Wrapping things up, just how excited are you to take to the to the field of play at the home of uh, Billericay Town? I, I'm a I'm a strange mixture of extremely excited and extremely nervous, having not not played football properly for about eight years. Um, I have no idea. I've got no concept of what the the standard is going to be like, and I have no idea if I'm going to be head and shoulders the worst player on the pitch and it's going to be extremely embarrassing for everyone involved or whether I'm going to slot in okay so but I'm really excited I'm really um I'm really happy to be part of it actually and I'm really really looking forward to it so yeah I'm looking I'm gonna have to go and buy some new boots (laughs) brilliant really enjoyed our chinwag with Steve there for you at home please stick around for part two as we're joined by a good colleague of mine and even more significantly a friend of ours CJ see you in a moment Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. The All Bets Are Off podcast is brought to you in association with Gamban, and they've teamed up with Gamcare and Gamstop to formulate Talkban Stop. 
The Talk Ban Stop campaign offers a trio of free tools to prevent gambling harm. With support via GamCare's National Gambling Helpline, free GamBan blocking software, and GamStop self-exclusion. Head to www.talkbanstop.com for more information. TalkBan Stop is only available in the UK, but to block your devices from accessing gambling sites and apps, you can get GamBan at gamban.com or on the App Store or Play Store, wherever you are in the world. Now though, it's time to get back into the pod. Welcome back to part two of the podcast in which now we have got something a little different than ordinary. In fact, I guess this next story is more in the style of therapy type delivery from a man that both Chris and I are very fortunate to know and work with. In this next section, CJ talks about his childhood and growing up around gambling and drug addiction and also describes some of the gaps in education and research and how TalkGen are seeking to bridge those gaps. This is a really intriguing listen and so sit back, relax and take what you can get from it. Hello, my name's CJ. I'm an anthropologist, researcher and writer, and I'm an affected other from Gambling Homes. Today I'm going to tell you a bit about my story, about my troubles with gambling, about my family's troubles with gambling, and how that fits into the current research and what's currently known about Gambling Homes. Research has shown that an individual with a gambling disorder passes on gambling harms to, on average, about seven individuals, with those closer to the gambler, those closer relationships being affected more seriously. And I, as a son of somebody with a gambling disorder, I'm one of those individuals. I think I've been suffering gambling harms my entire life. I would say these harms have directly affected me for the first 19 years of my life, and the legacy effect of said harms have affected me for the over 11. I come from a generation of individuals with gambling disorder, especially with my dad, even my granddad. My granddad bets on the horses daily, although nowadays he only bets in 20 and 30 Ps, so it's not too much harm. But still, he puts at least 30 quid on the lottery every week and has done since the 90s, only ever winning a maximum of 100 quid, may I add. Despite this 30 quid a week seemingly being a hole in his pocket, him, my granddad, and my dad, they still continue to bet on the national lottery every week. I think it's the fear of them, them not doing so and their numbers coming in one week that keeps them going. I've been asked to pick not lottery numbers since I can remember. We're talking from about five years old onwards. My family's usual numbers are etched into my brain like carvings into rock, although definitely not going to repeat them here, just in case they actually do come in one day and and they have to share it with you, lucky buggers. Speaking of lucky, I've always been the lucky one in my family. Or I've always been called the lucky one. I've been lucky in terms of picking roulette numbers, horses, dogs, football teams, you name it. The horses were more likely to win if I picked them. They were more likely to win if I was in the room watching. My numbers were more than likely to come in in the roulette machine because they were mine, because I was the lucky one. I was the lucky son. And I still am considered to be the lucky son. But my question is, how did this affect me? And how does it affect others like me that are also considered to be the lucky son or daughter? Was I more likely to gamble compulsively as I got older because I was the lucky one? Probably, right? I'll talk more about my own very predictable struggles with gambling in a short while. But I want to talk a bit more 
about my experiences as a child with gambling and the bookies and the gambling that was around me. You might be asking yourself, why was I even there to select numbers on the roulette machines as a child? Well, it's a bloody good question. Obviously, I didn't choose the roulette numbers until I was a bit older because the fixed odds betting machines or big fixed odds betting terminals weren't even a thing until I was about 12. I think that's right off the top of my head. But when they were, it was considered a treat to put 20 quid in the machine, which often turned into 40 or 50. I'd get treats if we won, and I'd watch my dad smack the machine if we didn't. Research at Imperial College has shown that the anticipation of the win on a roulette machine or in slots, for example, creates the rush in the form of dopamine. Not the actual win itself, it's the anticipation of the win, which means you're still getting this dopamine hit, you're still itching that scratch, just attempting to win. It doesn't matter if you win or not. Like, no wonder slot machines and roulette machines are so addictive in that regard. This is what makes this form of gambling so addictive for so many, as you don't even need to win to get the feeling that your brain craves. I have memories of being in a betting shop or a bookies since I was about six or seven years old. My dad's relationship with the people behind the desk and his charming nature meant that they turned a blind eye to me being there. I even have some memories of a lovely wrinkly old woman that stank as cigs giving me a, a lollipop a few times when I was in there, which is pretty crazy to think about, really. If that's not an incentive for a child to be in a betting shop, then I don't know what is. I had no comprehension at the time that this would be doing me harm. I was only a little kid. Or the fact that even it was a problem in reality, I considered it to be normal. I believe that I've had more awareness when I was younger in terms of educational programs in schools or awareness campaigns in schools that would have helped, helped me quite a lot, I think. It would have helped me understand my position and understand that it's not necessarily normal to experience the things I was experiencing. I'm happy to say that I've these days there are educational programs in schools in PHSC classes and, and the such, but I still feel more could be done to raise awareness for gambling harms in schools. I think creating this awareness at such an early age would prevent some of the pitfalls that some children fall into or some teenagers fall into with gambling. And those who are affected of us like I am and was, I think they're it would allow children to be a lot more open and understanding and I think it would go a long way to combat the stigma around gambling harms and gambling addiction also. As I mentioned earlier, the most prominent gambling issue that was around me was that of my father's. But that wasn't the only addiction troubles my, my father had and still has. Throughout my life, my father's battled a pretty serious heroin addiction. What's clear from the research and just life experience in general is that addictive behaviours and other disorders, some of them just go hand in hand. Previous research has indicated a strong association between problem gambling and various comorbid disorders. Comorbid meaning that they're more likely to come as a pair. These disorders can include mental health disorders, such as anxiety and mood disorders, substance abuse, which is definitely the case of my dad, especially in terms of alcoholism. Alcohol seems to have a pretty prevalent link to gambling disorder. However, I still feel more research needs to be done to understand the link between certain addictive behaviors and certain disorders and gambling. In general, gambling harm is such an under-researched area 
compared to alcoholism and substance abuse disorders, which are very heavily researched with thousands of thousands of scientific journals, the amount of journals into gambling harms isn't even a drop in the ocean in comparison. I believe my dad's use of substances like heroin and alcohol and gambling so compulsively is just a way to try escape reality. He would often steal and do ill-advised things around illicit drugs to fund both addictions, both his gambling addiction and his heroin addiction. Illegal things that ended up in him being incarcerated throughout my childhood, basically, and also throughout my teenage years. My dad was in and out of jail, I think, four, three, four, five times. I can't exactly put a number on it throughout my childhood. And yeah, as you can expect it, had a considerable effect on my childhood in general. Dealing with my, both my father's gambling and heroin issue and the fact that he was imprisoned for a significant amount of my childhood had a huge impact on me when I was a child, I believe. Well, first of all, my dad's addiction issues were the reason my parents got divorced. And obviously it's a very common thing to have a divorced family now, but it still has a toll on the child, I believe. Even when my dad was around, things were pretty difficult, to be honest. My dad didn't really pay any child support, which meant my mum struggled as an only mother. And she was also the primary caregiver to my grandmother who had MS. So yeah, it was pretty difficult. My mum said that when I was young, she would often go hungry, skipping meals sometimes for two days at a time, one day at a time to prioritize feeding me. Thinking of this still upsets me deeply, to be honest, but. I'm very thankful that I had my mother there as the rock and the person that was looking out for me because not many people even have one parent that can be a rock for them. So yeah, I'm thankful that she's in my life. It would often be the case that my mother would struggle during the week to feed me and then I would go down to my dad's house on the weekend and it would be a completely different lifestyle. When my dad had money, he spent it. And at the weekend, he would spend an ungodly amount of money on both gambling, but also entertaining me. I'm talking like hundreds and hundreds of pounds a day just on amusements and things like bowling that, in retrospect, my mum could have used to, to feed us, basically, and keep food on the table. This was quite confusing to me as a child, going from having this kind of lavish lifestyle of my father at the weekend and then going back to bare minimum on Mondays, my mum had to pick up the pieces. To say that I was a confused child would probably be an understatement. I was often very frustrated as a child and I always felt very, very insecure. I felt insecure about my roots, where I came from, and I would often lie to overcome this without being conscious of it. In retrospect, I was terrified of the stigma attributed to the son of somebody with a substance abuse issue or somebody with a gambling issue and I basically would just lie my way through it. I would lie about my father. I would lie about what, where he was when he was in prison. And I found that these lies would leak into other aspects of my life. Just telling little white lies as you do as a child that seemed pointless at the time, but and these lies seemed to be based in insecurity to me and I believe the, some of these insecurities are based in the, some of the traumas that I suffered as a child. As I mentioned, I was always very frustrated. When I was younger, I was quite a talented footballer, but I could never perform when the big teams came to watch me or 
when I had a trial or the scouts came because I just couldn't handle the pressure, basically. I always thought I was beneath the opportunity and simply would get very frustrated easily. I'm not sure if all these problems can be attributed to what I experienced with the addiction problems around me as a child, but well, I don't think they helped in any way. Sometimes I would just burst into tears for seemingly no reason on the football pitch or I'd get rageous when somebody tackled me or something I didn't like happened. I feel like this was me venting my frustration about what was happening around me as a child. I remember one time I had a bad week with dealing with my dad's issues and I decided I was going to take this out on this poor boy on the football pitch. This boy was running down the right-hand wing and I was up in a striker position. I decided that I was going to sprint down the length of the field as fast as I could and simply just wipe him out. My intention was to crunch the player, but I actually put in the perfect tackle, believe it or not. It was, yeah, and everyone started applauding. Nobody knew that my intention was to hurt this poor boy. My coach said it was one of the best efforts to trap back and tackle someone he'd never seen, but I never told him that my intention was not to get the ball, but hurt the poor dude. Frustrations like this were ever apparent in my childhood. And again, I feel like if there was more support in schools for children like me, then I would have been able to control this or better deal with it. I think the stigma around it was something that was huge to me. Whilst at university, my dad was in, just incarcerated down the road. I'd often lie to my friends I was going somewhere, going to the library, as I was just terrified of the stigma attached to visiting my dad in prison, especially considering I went to Durham University and a lot of my friends are from a wealthier background and from a private school background. and I just didn't think they'd relate or understand what was happening and quite frankly, I found it to be embarrassing. I now know that I shouldn't have been embarrassed and stigma is a funny thing. The majority of my closest friends aren't aware of my childhood and my family issues because I still haven't really opened up about it too much because I'm not too sure why, to be honest. I've only just started opening up to literally two months ago to friends that I've considered brothers for well over a decade now. It was actually starting a job in researching gambling harms and me reflecting on my life that has allowed me to open up to them. It's given me the strength to do so. My question is, why is there such a stigma attached to it? Part of my French book, fuck stigma. Fuck the feeling that you're lower than somebody else for a reason that's out of your control. Something that I've dealt with my entire life and right now I think it's ridiculous. In terms of gambling harms, there's been a significant lack of research into stigma. We need to better understand the perceptions of individuals with gambling disorders and the perceptions of individuals as affected others in society to ultimately find a solution to combating this stigma. Because stigma is holding a lot of people back and it needn't be. As I hinted at a bit earlier, I struggle with gambling myself. As a result of my surroundings, I've studied form on horses since I was young. I've been obsessed with football my whole life and at the age of 15, I started to use this football knowledge to bet. And I started to win, and I started to win a lot. This is a classic story of winning big early and getting hooked. Over the coming years, I continued to gamble. I continued to gamble on football. I developed a ridiculous knowledge of football in the Scottish third division, for example, or what some random teams were doing in Russia and who was worth backing in the ninth tier in English football, for example. Let's be honest, let's ask the question, how was I even allowed in the bookies when I was 15 years old? 
I wasn't quite the bearded fella I am now when I was 15, quite frankly, due to my short stature. I think I looked more 12 than I did 18, and I find it absurd that not nobody ever asked me for ID. I think once you get away with these things for the first time, it just becomes commonplace to see the same faces, and nobody bats an eyelid, to be honest. And there I was at 15 years old, daily, going into different bookies, not just one, multiple, around my home city. But this shouldn't really come as a surprise. There's some research conducted at Ascot where they asked a bunch, I think it was 20 16-year-olds to go get served at different bookmakers. And in 2014, not one bookmaker out of the 20 asked for proof of age, which is, let's be honest, it's absurd. This, uh, this research was reproduced recently and on this occasion, 17 bookmakers were tested and only 10 asked for ID. Obviously, that's a significant improvement on what happened in 2014, but it's still 45, close to 50% of bookmakers not asking a 16-year-old for ID. Betting on football eventually turned into betting on horses, dogs, fixed odds, betting machines, anything really. I was convinced at one point that I knew the trends of the roulette machine and always had a plan to beat it. One day I had upwards of 500 quid in my wallet from winnings over the weeks and months on the football. I remember walking to the bookies that day and walking out, but I don't have any memory of what happened in between. I feel like I was in some sort of trance state whilst wasting away 20 pound notes after 20 pound notes and successive spins losing and losing and losing. And eventually the whole 500 pound in my wallet had gone within maybe 40 minutes, 45 minutes, probably less. As I said, I don't really have any recollection of this happening, but what I do remember is the feeling afterwards, the feeling of dread. Like 500 quid to like a 17 year old I was at the time feels like everything, feels like all the money in the world. I remember staggering to the bus stop, almost losing consciousness due to the dread of losing all that money. I called my mum panicking, lying to her, saying I'd lost my wallet. My stepdad at the time knew that I'd lost all the money in the bookies, but I managed to convince my mum that simply I just lost my wallet. So if you listen to this mum, sorry for lying to you. My betting at the time was reinforced by my environment. My environment growing up surrounded by gambling with my dad, but also the other settings and other environments I placed myself in. At the time, as I said, an avid football fan and I was traveling home and away to watch a football team. And the culture behind this football fandom, that group of guys that would travel home and away, they facilitated this problem, to be honest. And not only that, I feel like practices such as heavy drinking, even aggressiveness and gambling are encouraged by older members of the group. Well, at least this is my personal experience. And as a result, my gambling issue got worse through that because if I'd win, I'd get congratulated by the group, I'd get congratulated by these older men that I respected, and it would simply encourage me to do it more. I also had a friend who, thinking back, he must have been struggling like I was and we would facilitate each of his gambling. It wasn't actually until I changed peer group and switched schools that I managed to stop gambling compulsively. I stopped going to the football because I switched schools. I stopped hanging around with this 
well, my friend at the time, who's a very close friend, who we would gamble together on Saturdays and go play snooker. Basically, I believe changing the environment I was in was the only reason I stopped gambling compulsively. This is a hard truth about addiction issues, in my opinion, that if you're struggling, you need to take yourself out of the environment that is reinforcing that behavior. You need to take yourself out of the environment that's reinforcing the addiction. This was definitely the case for me, and I imagine for many people, this is a very difficult thing to do because you form attachments, you form bonds, you have friends, but if these friends are reinforcing your gambling disorder or gambling compulsion, or your drug compulsion or your drug addiction, then this is only going to be detrimental to an individual's mental health. Thankfully, as an adult, I'm free of gambling disorder. But there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that I have an addictive personality and that this obsessive nature or addictive personality is genetic. Addictive behaviours have been shown by research to have a genetic component and both sides of my family have a history of addiction. I've always had an obsessive nature. As a child, as I said, I was obsessed with football. It's all I would do. It's all I would think about. It's all I would talk about. And as I got older, this obsessive nature turned itself to video games, for example, specifically Call of Duty. I played so obsessively days on end, like talking 10, 11 hours a day that I ended up failing my A-levels and had to retake the year. What's crazy is that even when I resat the next year after I changed schools, I nearly failed them again. And basically I had to give myself an ultimatum six weeks before my final exams or I would have failed them. And thank God I was strong enough to switch my focus because let's be honest, I wouldn't have the research job I do now. I wouldn't even be talking to you right now if I hadn't put down that Xbox controller. As I've got older, I've just started to embrace this obsessive nature. But instead of focusing on detrimental obsessions, like using certain substances or gambling, obviously, I've switched my focus and basically become addicted with things that I think bring positivity to my life. For example, a couple of years back, I started to practice jujitsu and I quickly, very quickly became obsessed. I started practicing four or five days a week practicing so much that my body was breaking down, but I loved it. And let's face it, it definitely beats being obsessed with gambling. I believe activities like this, especially the martial arts, like something like jujitsu, are super beneficial for those with addiction problems. It gives you something to focus on. It, it's a form of exercise. It's also a mental workout. Your brain gets that little hit of dopamine that it requires, the addictive brain requires and it's a massive sense of community. It's safe to say that I've made some great bonds and great friendships whilst on the mats, whilst trying to choke each other out and bend each other's limbs. It sounds ridiculous, but it's weird that it brings people together so closely. And I think those in recovery need that support. They need the support of a good social circle. As I said, if you're an individual that struggles with addiction problems or gambling problems, this obsessive nature probably isn't going to go away, but you can definitely redirect it into something positive. Like I redirected into learning Spanish, for example. I was so obsessed with learning Spanish that I ended up moving to Chile. 
I was so obsessed with chess during lockdown that I was spending six hours a day obsessively playing, but this is a way to distract myself because obviously during the lockdown, I was having issues myself. It was a way to distract myself from the reality, but it wasn't destructive in nature, like going to the bottle, for example, or compulsively gambling. Despite feeling like I've overcome addiction problems to a certain extent, I feel like the harms I've experienced through gambling mainly is unaffected ever, still run deep and still affect me to this day. In my dad's eyes, my life is a dream. I've been lucky enough to travel the world. I was the first from my family to graduate from university and I have a promising career. However, as I've got older, my insecurities still run deep and I've had to battle significant anxiety the majority of the days over the past couple of years. My anxiety has got progressively worse and it's got to the point where I'm having anxiety attacks based around seemingly innocuous things. It's gotten so bad that I've developed a form of Tourette's where I can't really control my body reactions when I get a sensation or thought that's attached to the anxiety. Sometimes when it's bad, I'll have a feeling of anxiety and I can't control my limbs. And being honest, I end up hitting myself or hitting a wall or something without any control over it. And it comes with it quite a serious feeling of internal pain. These struggles aren't really surprising when I look at the research. Research has shown that early life adversity and issues around family are a major risk factor for developmental, psychological and behavioral problems later in life. Individuals who suffer trauma as a child are more likely to develop anxiety disorders or more likely to suffer PTSD and have higher rates of depression and suicide. And these children that report having such experiences as a child also are more likely to develop addiction issues. In terms of gambling harms, a lot more research needs to be done to understand how these long-term legacy harms are impacting affected others, especially in terms of children as affected others. At TalkGen, the gambling harm reduction charity that I work for, we're looking to conduct a literature review, meaning a review of all the current research in terms of children and gambling harms. And we aim to highlight all, and I believe there are a shit ton of them, and the gaps in the research and the knowledge. For example, are those who are affected others, do they suffer developmental issues because of their experiences? Are they more susceptible to mental illness because of their experiences with gambling harms? I think that's obviously the case, but the research needs to back it up. There needs to be evidence to support these assumptions. Although I struggle with certain aspects of my life and my past, especially in terms of gambling homes, I feel very fortunate to be in the position I am in in my life. I feel very fortunate to have even gone to university, let alone have a promising career that's going to hopefully benefit the lives of thousands of people. The best part is that I feel like I've only just started. I feel like I haven't achieved any with anything near my potential, and I'm committed to researching gambling harms to help those that are suffering. Both those are individuals with gambling disorders and those like myself that are affected others. This is why my work at TorGen excites me so much. At TorGen, we have some very, very exciting projects in the pipeline. One of them is a large mixed methods project that will look at the as we call it, the eight gambling harms suffered by gamblers and affected others. Our objective is to create an enhanced understanding of the prevalence of specific gambling harms to individuals. These eight domains that we've highlighted are financial harms, work and study harms, the impacts on health, the emotional and psychological harms suffered, 
cultural harm suffered, and the criminality that's associated with gambling harms, the harms to relationships and the intergenerational harms that are hypothesized to be as a result of struggles with gambling harms. Similar in-depth research has been conducted in Australia, but in the UK, this research will be novel and will go a long way to understand the issues that individuals who gamble and affected others are facing in the UK. And from this better understanding, it will help us understand how to best treat these individuals, how to best support these individuals, how best to prevent these harms and how best to raise awareness from these harms so less people suffer in the long run. Another piece of research that we're looking to conduct at Torgen is research into how lockdown has impacted gambling behaviour and the consequent gambling harms in specifically in Wales. This will be done both for an online survey of the general population and then we're going to conduct 40 interviews with both affected others and individuals with gambling disorders. And finally, my last idea is a book concept. I'm a writer and I want to produce a book along the theme of overcoming gambling harms. This book will incorporate both high-level professional photography and eight human interest stories that represent different themes. I believe this will go a long way to raising awareness of gambling harms and especially around the theme of overcoming, it will support those that are currently struggling to know that others have been in their position and they've achieved their goal of overcoming gambling harms. If you're interested in hearing more about my story, what drives me or anything regarding the research and book projects we have planned at TalkGen, please just get in touch through the podcast platforms. Before I stop rambling, I just wanted to make a few things clear. Despite spending the last 30 minutes or so seemingly shitting on my dad, I must say that my dad is one of the most loving people I've ever met in my life. His love for me is unconditional and at his core, he's a beautiful human. Yes, he may have done things that he and I definitely aren't proud of, but undoubtedly his roots are based in his own trauma and his own issues and struggles in life. My father suffered various injuries in prison and as a result is on disability benefits. If those with substance abuse disorders or gambling disorders were treated as sick individuals rather than being thrown in jail, not only would it be better for the individual and society, but in the long run, I believe it will cost the government and the NHS a lot less. Such models are already thriving in places like Portugal and Spain where people with substance abuse issues are not treated as criminals. They're treated as individuals that are sick, individuals that need help, and their society is finding a lot of benefit in this. And I believe it will be the same in the UK, not only for substance abuse issues, but also gambling disorders and all other addiction issues, really. I also want to make clear that I'm not anti-gambling, so to speak. I'm anti-gambling harm. I have many friends that gamble with a couple of quid just for fun. It enhances the experience of the sport for them. And personally, I think people should have the freedom to do as they please. Let's face it, not many people are calling for the closure of pubs and bars because some members of society have an alcohol dependency. However, as I said, I'm 100% anti-gambling harm and a lot more needs to be done to support those suffering with gambling harms in terms of treatment and support, but also in terms of research. I believe research is the first step to enacting real change in this world, because if you don't understand a problem, how are you going to address it? So that's why I intend to do. Conduct research into gambling harms to make sure others like myself as affected others and individuals who find themselves gambling compulsively 
have an easier path to mental peace. Thank you. Well, wow, that was excellent. And I really wish to thank CJ for piecing that together. Incredibly powerful stuff there. There were so many things in there that I nodded my head to. And I especially simply have to agree with the notion of removing yourself from the environment that is causing you harm in addiction recovery. And on a personal note, it's certainly something that I had to do. Otherwise, I'd find myself in a lot of triggering spots. So certainly heed that advice. We're absolutely privileged to be working alongside CJ at TorchGen, and he had so, so much. And I'm just happy that our paths have crossed. He's a smart guy and has a insatiable appetite to do good in the world, as I'm sure that piece showed. I know for a significant part of that therapy, Chris talked about his own experiences and the links between childhood trauma and addiction. And next week, this is something we're going to delve into a little bit deeper. So until next time, take care, remain gamble-free, and a massive, massive thank you for listening. You've been listening to the All Better Off podcast. To find out more about the creators of the pod, then please visit our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. And don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at allbetteroff underscore and share this podcast with others. Until next time, stay safe and remain gamble-free. Thank you for listening.